Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio spoke to an expert on Chicago's meatpacking industry, discussed the crisis in urban housing, and spoke with the leading challenger for Chicago's mayorship. All this, plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for May 18th, 2018. Mario Smith and Michaela Blaze spoke with Gary McCarthy, the former superintendent of the Chicago police, now running for mayor. McCarthy pulled no punches, discussing the Laquan McDonald shooting, why he thinks Rahm Emanuel should face consequences, and what his Chicago would look like. News from the Surface Entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. My next guest is the former Chicago police superintendent, and he is currently running for mayor of the city of Chicago. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Mr. Gary McCarthy. Welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon. Good to talk. How are you guys doing? Wonderful, wonderful. Good to talk to you. Um, So you're running for mayor, huh? I I heard on the street that that's what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's, uh, pretty accurate. The street knows. The street knows what's going on. At what point did you make the decision after being police superintendent, that maybe running for mayor might be something you were interested in doing? So it it was a long process. Um, It's two and a half years since I got terminated uh, from my position. And um, probably about two years ago, people started coming to me and asking me if I was interested in running for office. And my answer was an unequivocal no over and over again, and they just kept coming back. And, uh, you know, eventually it started sinking in that, uh, you know, I I don't get any juice from private industry. I get great satisfaction out of public service. I was a public servant for 35 years, and uh, eventually when I started looking at the problems in Chicago, I realized that I have ideas as to how to solve them that just are not being done. And they've worked in other places, like New York and Newark and other places where I've worked. And uh, I'm not leaving Chicago, and I just can't stand by and watch what's happening here. So eventually I started leaning towards doing it. But the straw that broke the camel's back was the murder of Paul Bauer, commander who was killed in the shadow of City Hall by a four-time convicted felon wearing body armor and an extended magazine in his weapon. I mean, that's just the ultimate sign that no place in the city is safe. I have an 18-month-old son, and I'm not going to allow him to grow up in this environment if I could do something about it. And along those lines, um, you were police—you were police superintendent uh, for how many years? Four and a half. Four and a half. Uh, I almost gave you five for four and a half years. Um, <laughs> when you look back at your tenure. As Chicago Police Superintendent is, and and your your legacy, what do you see that is there still that you initiated, and and how do you feel about how you were dismissed? Well, so look, you know, there's no disputing the fact that we had the lowest murder rates in this city since 1965, in back to back years in 2013 and 2014, and crime was down by. 40% over my tenure. I mean, there were some great accomplishments there. And things that people don't even know is that complaints against officers were down by 50%. And gun arrests were up by 23%. So it wasn't a case of locking up everybody. It was being at the right place at the right time based upon intelligence of where and when crime was happening and arresting the right person for the right reason. And we made less arrests and got better results. So... That's indisputable. And the other thing people don't know is that police-related shootings were down 68% during my tenure based on policies, supervision, and training that we put in place. But all of that got washed away in the aftermath of my termination. And, And that's pretty disturbing. It's disturbing on two fronts. First of all, people are writing revisionist history about my tenure. And then the, the second thing is... Um, you know, living here and watching things happen, you know, shootings on my block, carjackings in my neighborhood. And I live in River North, places that, that never experienced this before. So it's really troubling to watch what's happened to the city between the economy and the taxes, uh, the, the, the crime and the schools. And they're all so intertwined, um, you really can't separate them. 
So I, I probably just got off topic from your question. No, not at all. Not but, at all. You know, that, that, those are the facts of what occurred while I was police superintendent. And, and the way that I was dismissed, you know, it, it, I had this conversation with a group of African-American ministers recently. And I showed them the evidence of the cover-up of the Laquan McDonald video, which was entirely in City Hall. It was it was done by Rahm Emanuel's attorney, Steve Patton. So what, and it was obviously done during the time that he was in the runoff against Chewy Garcia. Let me stop you right there. So sure. I, I, I've definitely... I, I, I would not be a human being if I did not ask you about the entire events surrounding Laquan McDonald's shooting and the the subsequent cover-up for 200 days of the videotape the fact that it was right right before the election all that stuff um I don't want to say what did you know and when did you know it but in essence what did you know about this videotape and when did you know it and and that and, and why didn't this information from you become something or become part of the public record, even though I understand that that was your boss and all that, it seems kind of disingenuous to some people that everybody knew about this tape and everybody knew about this boy being murdered, but nobody bothered to say anything about it for 200 days when there was clearly evidence there that wrongdoing had been done by the police officer. I I am really curious at... As you plan on running for mayor of the city of Chicago, how do you navigate that visual and that reality to people who live in underserved neighborhoods who have a thing in their head about the police already? Right. Well, the simple answer is truth telling. And, and the, the facts of this case are what's not known to the public, which is what I've spent a lot of time doing recently. And honestly, it's the first question I'm asked all the time. And I don't have a problem telling the truth. The truth is, you know, I wasn't in charge of the discipline system of the Chicago Police Department. I could only make recommendations to the police board. People don't know that. That's still the case today. Eddie Johnson is not in control. He's not the final determiner of discipline in the department. The superintendent is apparently accountable for everybody's behavior, but does not have the authority to discipline. It's a broken system. So that's the first fact that people need to know. The second thing is that there's an outside agency that investigates the police use of force. Both the police board and IPRO, which is now COPA, work for the mayor. They do not work for the police superintendent. I was not in charge of the investigation. I was never conferred with about the, uh, the civil suit, which is where the cover-up happened. This is all public record. There's something like 3,000 emails regarding Laquan McDonald, and I'm on exactly one, and it was after I was fired. And do you, so, believe, do you believe that that had something to do, your, your stance against the tape, had something to do with Rahm Emanuel having the, 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 uh, the foresight to fire you? I don't, I, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. What, what he said was he didn't. He wasn't in the discussion at all. Um, is yeah. that correct, Gary? You weren't yeah, in the discussion at e- all. That's exactly okay. correct. Here's, here's the timeline of what occurred. The shooting happened, I believe, on a Monday evening. I got a phone call the next morning, or maybe even that evening. It happened like 8 or 9 o'clock at night, if I recall. So I got a phone call that evening telling me, that we had just shot and killed a young man who was in possession of a knife on the southwest side. Not a whole bunch of details were involved in it, because it was very preliminary. The next morning, I spoke to the mayor, which would have been Tuesday morning. I told him about the shooting. Didn't really have much details on it. Wednesday, I had a briefing on the shooting, which is a policy that I put in place, that every single police-related shooting would be reviewed by the executive staff at the next executive staff meetings, which were held Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So Wednesday, I had a briefing on the shooting, saw the video, called the mayor immediately, and told him the problematic scenario that that had played out, uh, that the video was, was a very difficult thing to watch, and at the end of the day, it was going to be a problem 
And what I said was for the officer to articulate his actions. And I know that I said that because I remember it very specifically. That's what I told him Wednesday morning after the shooting. He knew about it. He was disinterested and went on to the next topic. So after that, the investigation continued by IPRA. They took it right to the United States attorney. So we had a federal investigation, which is what people want into a use of force event in a police department. We have civilian oversight of the department in the, in the, uh, uh, in the, in the police board. And we had an outside investigation by a separate agency than the department. That was my sum total of my involvement in that investigation. After that, it was not mine, and I had nothing to do with it, yet I was accountable. You can't have accountability without authority. And that's what we have. That's what's set up here, and it's a failed system. Look at what happened. So, <clears throat> All those folks work for Rahm Emanuel, and he's the guy who's running for office for a third time. Got that's it. unconscionable. So if, if in a perfect world... If you would have gotten that information, seen that tape, and you have all the power to do whatever you want to do, what, what would you have done? Well, at the time, um, and, and I'm on record as saying this, and I don't mind saying it because it's the truth, uh, at the time, the policy of police departments across the country was not to release evidence in an ongoing investigation until it was completed. So my stance at the time that I would have articulated if anybody had asked me was not to release the video. Now, having said that, departments across the country over the last three or four years have changed, just about all of them have changed their policies, and they do a quick release of, of videos, which I concur with, as long as it's not interfering with the investigation. Sometimes these investigations take way too long. Anytime the U.S. attorney gets involved, it's going to slow it down because the feds move at a different pace. Sure. So at Is, the time, I would have been against it. Right now, I, I'm okay with transparency and releasing it. And so but those what are decisions that prosecutors were making, Got it. by the way. And what would you, uh, if you um, could, what, what would be your approach to Officer Van Dyke? Would he be fired immediately? Would you encourage um, the state's attorney to press charges on him? What about the rest of the uh, the officers that were also in the area who apparently didn't tell the truth on, you know, their, their, um, uh, their remembering of the incidents. What, I mean, how, yeah. what, if you could do anything, what would you do? They should all be fired. Anybody who lies during an official investigation needs to be fired. As far as Van Dyke's actions that night, you know, he, he's entitled to due process like any other American citizen. Sure. And that's something that we kind of forget about. Um, it doesn't mean that he's right. It doesn't mean that he's wrong. But the process has to play out. Um, he's on a no. He's on a no. One of the rules, and by the way, this is by Illinois state law. The only action I could take at the time was to put Van Dyke on paid desk duty. People don't know that. They think it's from a contract. If they know that at all, it's not the contract. It's Illinois state law. So the system is not set up to give us what we're looking to get. Wow, I didn't, yeah, and, I didn't and, know that. And this is where we are. Hmm. So, and one of the things that I've been really pushing publicly at this point is I have Steve Patton, Rahm Emanuel's attorney, his testimony to the City Council Finance Committee where he went and told them that Van Dyke acted within the scope of his employment and they wanted to give a $5 million payout to the family without them filing a lawsuit. And they said that they did that all the time. I personally don't believe it. I don't have proof of that. But I do know that a year and a half later, when Steve Patton resigned, he did an exit interview with Franz Bielman from the, from the Sun-Times mm -hmm. and said that when he saw the video, he believed then, and it's been borne out now, that it was a case of murder. Well, murder is not within the scope of authority or employment of a police officer. So one of those two statements is a lie. And that lie took place in April of 2015 when 
Rom was in his runoff with Chewy Garcia. You know, you don't have to be Columbo to solve this one. That's the smoking gun right there. And he also failed to mention to the city council that there was a caveat in the agreement not to release the video. And do you think... That, I think that you can make a criminal case for those actions. There's a crime called official misconduct. When, it, when an official of government takes an action they're not supposed to take and it benefits somebody else or themselves, and in this case, it would be the mayor by getting elected for his second term, it's a crime. You, you're, you're speak- and I don't understand why nobody is running with this. Because I think because the narrative has already been written and people have made up their mind when this was never revealed. And I only found this out about eight months ago. So let me let me ask you this then before we move on from this very tense subject of Laquan McDonald and this videotape. It, what I'm hearing you say is by virtue of the mayor knowing and, and, and by virtue of all the people around him who had knowledge of this lying about it, that he should be held responsible for it within within the court of law. Well, the people doing the investigation worked for him. True. IPRA, COPA now, today, work for the mayor. And the police board, who's in charge of discipline, is appointed by the mayor, just like the school board. Mm-hmm. So the system is rigged. Mm-hmm. We're talking with and Gary. He should be held accountable. We're talking with Gary McCarthy, former Chicago police superintendent, current candidate for mayor of the city of Chicago. So, um, with that in mind, all that we just talked about, this question that you're going to get hit with over and over and over and over again, what is Gary? Right. What is Gary McCarthy Chicago look like? Um, <laughs> you know, there was just a report that came out that called Chicago the most corrupt city in the country. And things like pay-for-play, you know, if you want to get a city contract, all you have to do is make a campaign donation to the mayor. That's not going to happen under my watch. And what we're going to see is across-the-board fairness. (laughs) People are not going to get jobs based upon patronage. You're not going to see things like what the mayor did because his brother owns a significant portion of Uber, you're not going to see what happened to the taxicab drivers in Chicago, which is they're held to a different standard than the Uber drivers, which is basically driving them out of business. You're not going to see the 1% getting all the tax breaks while John Q. Citizen is out there paying the city's bills because they're hit with overwhelming taxes. Across the board fairness, You'll see business management of city government, not politics as usual around here, which is, you know, pay for play. And if you got a guy, then you can get something done. And you know what else you're going to see? You're going to see customer service out of City Hall. How's that for a concept? (laughs) Have you ever tried to get something done in City Hall? The first five answers is no. And the sixth one is it's yes if you have a guy. (laughs) So, you know, you're going to see the crime rate go down. You're going to see... You're not going to see political machinations within the Chicago Police Department. You're going to see a professional meritocracy where people advance based upon their ability and their hard work. And you're going to see public service from the mayor, not politics. I know Mikayla has a question for you, but I have to ask you this. Within the realm of the Chicago Police Department, if you're elected mayor, what is your position on retraining and refocusing how the Chicago Police Department works, particularly in areas that are underserved here in town? You know, you're asking a question that I answered five years ago. We implemented the, the, the best gold standard training for Chicago police officers that, remember I said complaints against officers went down dramatically? We implemented something called police legitimacy training, We worked with two Yale professors named uh, Tom Tyler and Tracy Mears, who actually Tracy's from Chicago, to put this training together and trained every member of the department twice in that training. People were coming from all over the country to learn it. We also retooled the department. We were not constructed to deliver community policing because we had these big task forces that did all the 
all the enforcement in the in the city. And they would run around from the west side to the south side to the northwest side, wherever there was a problem with no connection to the community. So you'll see community policing at its finest. All of that was in place. Everything has been reversed. There's no beat integrity. If you notice, <clears throat> if there was just a report out that they've hired more officers, the head count is higher than it was when I was superintendent, but there's less officers on patrol, which means they're not being managed. They're, they're put away in, in closets and doing clerical work and things of that nature. When I was the superintendent, it was all hands on deck. Everybody does police work, and, and we knocked that back dramatically. So all of those things were in place, and you're also going to see fundamental fairness within the department. You know, how you treat, if you treat people like garbage, they're going to go out and treat other people like garbage. I get very emotional about this stuff because it's so important, so I apologize if, I, if, I, if I'm, you know, giving you too much, but no, there's no, so much to talk about. Here. Yeah, I appreciate the passion. I'm curious how you feel as um uh, from from your history in law enforcement, how do you feel about the police being criminally prosecuted for things that happen while they're on duty? Um, it, they should be if it's a criminal case. Look, if it, if an officer breaks the law, they should be prosecuted. And if they if they violate policy, they need to be disciplined or retrained. It's it's that simple. They're not above the law. Got it. You know, and and they have to have that integrity. You know, a, a story occurred to me recently, so bear with me for one second if you don't mind. I understand temptation, but I can't understand breaking the law for a police officer. And here's just a real quick story. When I was a young sergeant, I was a tax sergeant in the South Bronx in New York City, and we found $100,000 in cash on a kitchen table in a drug apartment with nobody there. It was an open door, and naturally we took it all. We went back to, to the station house and we were vouchering it, which was a very onerous process. I would have driven away with bill. it. Sorry, Gary, yep. I would have been gone. I, you, like, I would be a part of the problem, just so you know. But you got to, <laughs> Michaela, you got to hear this, this, the, the, the punchline here. You have okay. to stamp each bill. You have to initially, you have to count it a hundred times. And naturally, you know, you, you get miscounts all the time. Well, during this, like, eight-hour process, I reach into my pocket. I, drove, I used to drive a 71 Chevelle back and forth to work. Uh, I, I had two kids and, and barely getting by, and I had a $5 bill in my pocket, and I gave it to one of my guys, and I said, do me a favor, just go get us some pizza, whatever you can get with this. And then I turned and looked at the $100,000 on the table, and it never occurred to me right. to even take a 20 and give it to the guy and say, go get everybody pizza. Right. And, and that's the mindset that police officers have to have. You have to have fundamental honesty. You have to have integrity. And and if officers don't have integrity, the society is upside down because we're the ones who are supposed to be stopping the bad guys from doing the bad things. And if cops are doing bad things, we're, we're never going to succeed. Hey, Gary, I have to say thank you so much. Mario, did you have a, any additional I was just going to say goodbye to him yeah. as well. I, I, and, and I just, I really, you know, it's one thing to, to say you're going to do something, then it's another thing to show up. And... You showed up, so I, that's that's half of it for me. And I truly appreciate you showing up, and I uh, I, I don't have a, a, a dog in this fight really because it's seven hundred of you people running for mayor. But <laughs> I, I am I am very hopeful that when these numbers get pared down and you get a chance to speak your truth, we'll see how the people feel about it. But but there, there is there absolutely is something to be said for showing up. So thank you so much for being on the show well, today. Let me this last point that I didn't finish before. When I had that conversation with a group of ministers, African-American ministers, they all said the same thing to me. They said, we knew that this is what happened, but you just proved it to us. And you know what? The truth will prove it. And I'm not, I'm not afraid of the truth. Welcome to the show. I'm standing outside the co-prosperity sphere here on Morgan waiting for Kyle. And this episode will be... What's up? 
Come here. Okay, uh, yeah, park the truck. Don't park. There's a railroad tie in the back. Pull it out and slide it in front of the back tires. It'll come to a full stop. Uh, okay. <coughs> uh, serious carbon monoxide stuff going on yep. with this truck. <laughs> That's not good. I know I... I know I kept falling asleep in front of red lights. Whose pickup truck is this, anyway? That's a friend of mine's. I mean, what, do you, what were you doing with it? I've been delivering filing cabinets all over the city. Why filing cabinets? Because it's the safest way for people to keep the facts safe from alternative fact people. Oh, you mean like documents, birth certificates, passports, stuff facts like that? Facts of life. Conversations, photographs, doodles, recipes, mm. all things. See, filing cabinets can't crash or be hacked or manipulated by anything that isn't a crowbar or the key that opens it. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't a hard drive do the job? Hard drive? Are you nuts? Uh, do you have any ideas how easy it is for someone with advanced computer knowledge to get inside of one of those things? <laughs> hey, Janice Joplin, I bet all the recipes that Mars Brewing has are on some dumb computer somewhere. Is yeah. it any surprise at all that we live in an age well, of an just... orange man... And the Patriots cheating <sighs> their way into another Super Bowl. The whole society is becoming undertow. Yeah, I know. It does feel that way. I just... At least the Women's March was a positive example where the nation can go, you know? It was more than positive. It saved my life. How do you mean? Uh, the carbon monoxide leak in the truck nearly killed me a bunch of times. I was constantly being resuscitated. So you were in the march? I was delightfully trapped in it, actually. I was doing my part in handing out filing cabinets. That's awesome, Kyle. I mean, not very cool for the environment, but your best effort is good enough, as always. You know, I, I don't want to ruin the show or nothing, but I gotta ask. Why do you sound so depressed today? Well, an overwhelming sense of dread. Uh, you know what? There's, there's no time to wallow. You can donate, you can volunteer, you can show up and get involved. You can make America not like Undertown. Right. Now repeat after me. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make America... Okay. We should write a song. Yeah, okay. I want to where there's no snow. This week on The Trump Diaries, no apologies for mocking a dying senator, the Michael Cohen case deepens as he is tied to Russia, Betsy DeVos kills an investigation while Scott Pruitt covers up a water contamination scandal, protests turn violent in Jerusalem, and Mike Pence makes his move. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 475, May 9th. Material came to light connecting a payment made to Stormy Daniels from Trump lawyer Michael Cohen to a Russian oligarch. A dossier compiled by Daniels lawyer claims that a company, Columbus Nova, connected to the Russian oligarch Victor Vecklesburg, made eight payments to essential consultants, which is one of Michael Cohen's shell companies, between January and August of 2017. Daniels lawyers tried to link the payment from Russia to his client. The FBI said a foundation run by that Victor Vecklesburger might be linked to the GRU. The FBI said in 2014 his foundation, quote, may be a means for the Russian government to access our nation's sensitive or classified research, development facilities, and dual-use technologies with military and commercial applications. And Russian-linked companies registered a number of alt-right websites during the 2016 elections. Guess what? Columbus Nova is listed as the registrant behind a handful of website domains named after the alt-right movement. In addition, Cohen apparently shopped access to the Trump White House, collecting $1.2 million from the drug maker Novartis and nearly $600,000 from AT&T. 
Novartis ended that relationship and later fired their lawyer ostensibly for healthcare consulting after determining that Cohen was, quote, unable to perform the task. AT&T made their payment ahead of an antitrust decision as they seek to merge with Time Warner. AT&T has publicly apologized for the payment, saying it embarrassed the company and was a, quote, big mistake. The Senate Intelligence Committee concluded that Russia conducted an unprecedented, coordinated cyber campaign that aimed to undermine confidence in U.S. voting systems from 2014 until the election in 2016. The report says that Russia targeted 18 states seeking vulnerabilities and, in a small number of states, actually did breach election computer defenses. Russian hackers were in a position to, at a minimum, alter or delete voter registration data. The nominee to lead the CIA defended that agency's use of torture of terrorism suspect, but said she would not restart under any circumstances any interrogation programs at the CIA. Gina Haspel refused to say whether she believed it was wrong to waterboard terror suspects. Following her appearance, John McCain said he would not support her nomination, joining Rand Paul. Haspel is believed to have the votes to pass. Primary voters largely turned back fringe candidates, with Don Blankenship losing in West Virginia to a Republican Senate primary, and Dennis Kucinich losing in Ohio in a Democratic primary. Day 476, May 10th, North Korea turned over three American hostages in a gesture ahead of a scheduled June 12th meeting with Trump in Singapore. At the hostages landing in Maryland, Trump said, quote, everyone thinks I deserve the Nobel Prize. Everyone thinks so, but I would never say it. Trump then tweeted about taking away press credentials from media outlets over, quote, negative coverage of him. Quote, why do we work so hard in working with the media when it is corrupt? Take away credentials? The tweet apparently was linked to a report on Fox and Friends that claimed 91% of news coverage about the White House was negative. Vice President Mike Pence said it's, quote, time for Robert Mueller to wrap it up because it's been about a year since this investigation began in an interview at The Washington Post. Pence's hopeful words are part of a coordinated push by Trump's defenders to undermine the special counsel's investigation. And John McCain revealed it was him that gave the Steele dossier to FBI head James Comey. McCain said, quote, I reviewed its contents. The allegations were disturbing. I had no idea if any were true. I did what any American who cares about our nation's security should have done. I did what duty demanded I do. Rudy Giuliani abruptly resigned from his law firm Greenberg Traurig. That firm then undercut Giuliani's statements defending Trump. Giuliani has been attempting to normalize Michael Cohen's payment to an adult film star. The law firm said in a statement, quote, we would not condone payments of the nature alleged to have been made or otherwise without the knowledge and direction of a client. Giuliani has said Trump was unaware of those payments. Day 477, May 11th. Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen drafted a resignation letter and nearly quit after Trump berated her for a half an hour in front of his entire cabinet. Trump had singled Nielsen out for what he called her failure to secure the nation's border after illegal crossings along the Mexico border topped 50,000 for the second consecutive month. That is denied Trump one of his favorite talking points. And the White House refused to apologize after a staffer mocked John McCain's cancer diagnosis. Special Assistant in Communications Kelly Sadler said McCain's opposition to Gina Haspel, quote, doesn't matter, he's dying anyway. TV commentator and daughter Megan McCain called on the Trump administration to fire Sadler, saying, I don't understand what kind of environment you're working in when that would be acceptable, and then you can come to work the next day and still have a job. Sadler reportedly called the younger McCain to apologize. She has refused to apologize, however, publicly, as she promised, and the White House has not apologized. John Kelly said that undocumented immigrants coming to the U.S., quote, don't integrate well because they don't have the skills to assimilate into, quote, our modern society. Day 478, May 12th. Trump unveiled a plan to, quote, bring soaring drug prices back down to earth by promoting competition among pharmaceutical companies. But he dropped the popular and populist proposals of his presidential campaign, opting not to have the federal government directly negotiate lower drug prices for Medicare. American consumers are also forbidden from importing lower-cost medicines from abroad. Both tools are seen as crucial by health policy experts to get drug prices under control. Trump's plan, in fact, was, quote, seen as very, very positive to Big Pharma, according to one analyst, and Big Pharma stocks soared on his announcement. The governor of Oklahoma vetoed a bill that would have eliminated the need for training and permits to carry a gun in public. Governor Mary Fallon overrode a Republican legislature, saying, quote, I believe the firearms laws we currently have in place are effective, appropriate, and minimal. Day 479, May 13th. In a shock, Trump tweeted he would help rescue the failing Chinese electronics manufacturer, ZTE. The firm has been repeatedly sanctioned for breaking U.S. law and was recently banned from using American-made parts for seven years. The company was sanctioned over fears the company's products could be used for cyber espionage in the United States. ZTE has close ties with China's government. U.S. officials have repeatedly raised concerns its phones could be used as surveillance tools against Americans. Military bases in America have already banned ZTE products. Congress warned about ZTE and a rival, Huai, as early as 2012. 
Betsy DeVos killed the education department team responsible for investigating for-profit colleges accused of widespread fraud. The move stopped investigations into for-profit colleges where many of DeVos' top hires previously worked, such as DeVry. Those colleges have been accused of pervasive fraud. The White House continues to decline to apologize for Kelly Sadler's joke about John McCain. Instead, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said it was selfish for staff to use the inappropriate comment as justification for leaking it to the press. I am sure this conversation is going to leak too, she said, and that's just disgusting. Sanders was correct. Five separate people leaked that conversation. Dave Warner Nee, May 14th. Mass protests in Gaza turned violent as thousands of Palestinians attempted to cross the Israeli border. Israeli troops trained live fire on the protesters, killing at least 60 and wounding nearly 3,000 others. Israeli forces claimed the protesters were hurling grenades and other explosives at troops. Witnesses described the scene as a pitched battle. The demonstrations were sparked in part by the United States' decision to move its embassy to Jerusalem. And a Dallas evangelical pastor who once said that Jewish people are going to hell, and a megachurch televangelist who claimed that Hitler was part of God's plan to return Jews to Israel, both appeared in the opening ceremony of that new American embassy. Both men, Robert Jeffress and Reverend John C. Hagee, are among the leading pro-Israel voices in the evangelical Christian world. Mitt Romney attacked both men, saying, quote, Jeffress says you can't be saved by being a Jew. Mormonism is a heresy from the pit of hell. He said the same about Islam. He's a religious bigot. He should not be giving the prayer that opens the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. Mike Pence is said to have organized a shadow election organization that has effectively seized control over Republican efforts in 2020. Taking advantage of Trump's disinterest in politics and his aides' constant infighting, Pence is said to have crafted a disciplined, well-organized election machine that puts the vice president in effective control of the upcoming election cycle. He's also hired Trump's first campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. The Post reports that Trump vents to associates about the FBI raids on his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, as often as 20 times a day. And they frequently listen in silence, knowing little they say will sue them. Trump also frequently gripes that he needs, quote, better TV lawyers to defend him on cable news. And Melania Trump underwent surgery to treat a benign kidney condition. She was reported to be recovering without trouble in a military hospital outside the Capitol. Day 481, May 15th. Scott Pruitt blocked the publication of a federal health study on a nationwide water contamination crisis on the grounds it would cause a public relations nightmare. The Department of Health and Human Services says it has no scheduled date to release for public comment a study that shows a class of toxic chemicals that contaminated water supplies from New York to Virginia, particularly around military bases. The chemicals, known as PCBs, cause thyroid problems. New York Magazine published an in-depth look at the relationship between Sean Hannity and Trump, calling it an, quote, effed up feedback loop. The story reveals how Sean Spicer and Rince Priebus tried to get Trump to only watch Fox News in the hopes of keeping Trump on course. That has backfired spectacularly. Hannity now apparently talks to Trump every night before bed, functioning as something of a surrogate wife. Day 482, May 16th. North Korea suddenly threatened to cancel Trump's upcoming nuclear summit with Kim Jong-un because of joint U.S.-South Korean military exercises. The Koreans canceled high-level talks with South Korea due to those exercises. Trump and North Korea are scheduled to meet on June 12th in Singapore. Women won big in a closely-watched Pennsylvania primary, where Democrats are now poised to flip that state. A state rep, an Air Force veteran, and two high-powered lawyers, all women, won in districts they are now favored to carry in November. Pennsylvania's districts were redrawn by court order after pervasive Republican gerrymandering. And a White House official has said he received an email in the first half of 2016 alerting the Trump campaign that Russia had damaging information about Hillary Clinton. The only problem is that investigators cannot find it. Such an email would be explosive, providing evidence that at least one high-ranking Trump campaign official was alerted to Russia's meddling, undercutting Trump's denials of collusion. That official, John Mashburn, said he remembered the email coming from George Papadopoulos well before WikiLeaks began publishing messages stolen in hackings from Democratic emails. Mashburn is apparently telling the truth, but no record of such an email has yet been found. And Trump's poll numbers have risen again slightly to 44%. Those are his highest numbers in 14 months. Trump tweeted, quote, the people truly get it. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 was in conversation with Dominic Pashka, author of Slaughterhouse. A history of Chicago's union stockyards, Pashka spoke about the beginnings of the radical labor movement in our city, the rise and fall of the meatpacking industry, and how Chicago birthed a major modern industry. I-94 with Jeremy Kitchen, Michael Sack, and Jamie Trecker taped this show live at Pilsen Community Books, and it will air this Sunday at 11 a.m. 
it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Even if you've driven by the Union Stockyards, it's still a very big place mm-hmm. in Chicago uh, in terms of its physical footprint. But even reading the book, it, it, I was struggling to grasp the numbers because the, the the numbers of animals that were moving through the stockyards is is truly astonishing, and it, it does kind of show you the growth of the United States, mm-hmm. as well as the growth of the um, industrial packing of all foods. Because the stockyards didn't just do meat, as we'll discuss right. later on; they did other things as well. But I wondered if you could give the audience some kind of idea of the volume, because it, it really is kind of tremendous. Yeah, well, uh, you know, at the, at the very beginning in 1865, it was a very slow start that uh, January of 1866. It was a very slow start, but then it picked up very quickly, and it became the leading market in the country uh, and in the world, in fact. At its peak in the 1920s, in two years alone, 18 million head of livestock were unloaded at the Union Stockyards. Between 1893 and 1933, there were never fewer than 13 million head a year. Uh, the Tribune called it organized chaos. Uh, you know, if you, I, uh, when I worked there, the first thing you do is you walk into the pens, and you, all the pens look alike. And you say, how am I going to find my way around this maze, right? What it, set up, it was set up by uh, Octavius, Octavius Chanute, uh, who was originally, you know, one of the Wright brothers. He helped the Wright brothers build airplanes, but he was originally a railroad designer, a railroad and yard designer. He was an engineer. He set it up so it's just like Chicago. If you know the number, if you know where 1105 West 18th Street is, you can go there because you just count it off, right? Uh, and it's the same thing in the stockyards. It would be uh, Block D, uh, pen 27, and so forth and so on. So they all had an address. Each pen had an address. It, it, you know, what, what really struck me, I, I think about 18 million head of livestock coming in. You're a farmer from Idaho, you know, or Iowa or whatever, and uh, you're bringing in 25 head of cattle. You want to be paid for your 25 head of cattle, not Farmer Smith from Wisconsin's 25 head of cattle. So each head of livestock, including horses, sheep, cattle, and hogs, had a piece of paper on them. So this is before computers. So that, you know, you got paid for your livestock. Uh, and the farmers didn't trust Chicagoans. You know, we always get our 10%, as you know. Uh, Chicago always gets its 10%, no matter what happens. So they didn't really trust Chicago. And Chicago, by the way, will get 20 if you let him. You know, uh, so it's, it's uh, farmers were always skeptical. They would come and they'd stay at the transit house, which later became the stockyard inn, uh, and, and, and go to the market with their animals. They wanted to make sure they had their animals. To, and a check would be given. So the, so the animals are purchased they're by, let's say, armor. They're driven to a scale. The scale uh, uh, could do, I think, 25 cattle at a time, maybe 100 hogs at a time. Um, and they are given a, uh, a check right there. The check is just issued right at the scale so that you know, they felt secure. Uh, it was very, you know, there's uh, still a building there, uh, not to get too much off the topic, but there's still a building there that looks like Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And that's the old Livestock National Bank building. And the reason it looks like Independence Hall, because the stockyard company said, if you shipped your livestock to Chicago, you kept your independence as a farmer. So that was an old, uh, an old advertising gimmick right from the very beginning. But the massive number of people, uh, so for instance, um, Armour would kill six to 8,000 hogs a day. Swift would kill six to 8,000 hogs a day. Uh, about 2,500 to 3,000 cattle a day. Uh, the cattle process is, 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 is much bulkier and larger, of course. Um, and uh, it, it was an amazing market. Uh, nothing was done. I, I said a piece of paper was ever on every animal. That's true. But no, no contracts were signed. So if I was a buyer for Swift and Company and I came into a pen and I said, I want to buy these animals, we'd settle on a price and I'd take my whip and I'd just sh- drop the whip. That meant that I, I agreed to pay for them. And my word was supposed to be good. The uh, Chicago Livestock Exchange maintained it. Uh, and if it didn't, then I was kicked out of the stockyards if I screwed up, you know. So there was a, a tremendous amount of, a tremendous attempt to make farmers feel secure, bring their cattle in, bring their hogs in, bring their sheep in. And uh, even till the end, it, the last year I was there, I think we had three quarters of a million cattle come in. Uh, for the, it was just a cattle market at the, at, in the last year. 
I tell you, though, I, I don't know how many of you have ever been around hogs, but if you've ever been in a building, the biggest run of hogs in one day at the Union Stockyards was 120,000 hogs in one day. That's a lot of hogs. That's a lot of pork. Uh, And 120,000 hogs in one day, and they were all sold, and they were dispatched. Yeah. What were they doing with them? Was it a lot of ham? Was it Easter time or something? I forget what time of the year it was, but it was an awful lot of hogs. And, you know, the other thing is, don't forget that it was also a shipping market. So in the beginning, most of the livestock were shipped east. Once refrigeration took place and refrigerated cars were created in the 1870s, early 1880s, then uh, chilled beef was, and chilled pork were sent east, uh, uh, and that's another story. But uh, even at, at, the, at, at its height, one-third of all the animals were shipped to an eastern market for the most part to be slaughtered because in the kosher kill, where there are large Jewish populations in New York, Philadelphia, Boston— uh, the kosher kill, you have to eat the meat within a certain period of hours after the slaughter. And if you don't, then it's not kosher. And so they would be—even—we were shipping to kosher kills in Pennsylvania and in New York as, as late as the 1970s. And there were some experiments with ways to keep the, the meat— Chilled. Oh, I, yes. There was a, one, I believe they were leaving the doors open on the rail cars right. in the wintertime, right. as you described in your book. And then right. uh, there was a primitive version of air conditioning in the offices with cool water. Right. The, the Swift & Company general offices, which were built in 1906, was the first building in Chicago to be air conditioned. So what they would do is they would, they would flow cold water and have fans blowing uh, in the air across the, somehow. I'm not sure how it was done, but oh, like uh, a yeah. primitive swamp cooler kind of. Yeah, thing. sort of. Yeah, yeah. it's like the yeah. thing at Sox Park. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's yeah. called yeah. losing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's not very nice. Now. Well, I'm a Sox yeah. fan, but this year it's killing me. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's a rebuild. It's, it's a rebuild. Let's, yeah. let's get back on topic. Let's okay. talk about chilled beef here. Let's not talk about. I'm starting to shake now. Let's yeah. not talk about. Well, I mean, you know, we, got, we got some pro. Oh. We have a really <laughs> bad habit of getting off topic. I did want to <laughs> read a description of the smell of the stockyard. This is from Grand Duke Boris. Uh, he was a cousin of the of a Russian czar, or the Russian czar, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he said in 1902, the combined smells seem to focus in a crescendo of coagulated putridity. And uh, Kipling was there too, and he said they are, in describing the hogs, I, I love this, he says, they were so excessively alive, these pigs, and then they were so excessively dead. And the man in the dripping, clammy, hot passage did not seem to care. And Sarah Bernhardt was there. There was many, many uh, the German socialist Max Weber, and they also had tourist brochures, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. trading cards, mm-hmm. things yeah. like that. They had trading cards? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I could get my favorite sticker on a card, basically, is what you're saying. Well, you sort of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. They had uh, uh, these uh, stereo-optic cards, uh, you know, and uh, you can, and by the way, if you're on eBay, uh, punch in Union Stockyard Chicago, and all this stuff shows up. I was going to ask yeah. you because many of the photos in the book are from Dominic's collection, and right. I was going to ask you where, so now I know. Yeah. So, for instance, there's no, uh, uh, for those of you out there who worry about copyright, there's no copyright on anything before 1923. So these stereo optic cards are all before 1923, so you can just reproduce the pictures, and they come out crystal clear. Uh, they're really of high quality. <clears throat> Uh, but on the other hand, if you are at a museum and they have the same picture, they charge a lot of money. But eBay, I can get them for seven bucks. Don't tell anybody. Okay. I think you've just blown your cover. Oh uh, yeah, uh, you have to get out of town. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's 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 really interesting uh, because to get back to all these people coming in, uh, you have these little tourist books, and I've bought several of them on eBay once again, uh, and uh, uh, they are uh, just just. Uh, illustrated uh, drawings of what you're going to see. They explain everything. Originally, when people came in, now let me say this the first guidebook to the stockyards appeared before the stockyard opened. It was an uh, entrepreneurial uh, journalist who wrote a book, uh, wrote a guide to the stockyards. Uh, he came down and watching him build it, and he did it. Uh, it's it sold out several editions, um, and uh, uh, it 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 was be- because tourists came even before it was opened, just to see this huge sea of pens, which was just a, an amazing. Thing. They could unload over 500 railroad cars at a time. 
500 railroad car, when it opened, by the time it you know, was at its peak, there were probably 1,000 railroad cars at a time. And uh, a railroad car could hold about 200 hogs or 200 sheep and, or about 25 head of cattle in each railroad car. Uh, and they were, uh, you know, wooden cars. Uh, railroads don't do this anymore. Uh, they're basically out of business, I believe. I mean, everything's done by truck now. But uh, we had, uh, if I can tell a personal story. Absolutely. We, we, we had 2,500 cattle come in from uh, the Dakotas uh, for a show. And um, they were black Angus. And we were unloading them. Uh, and they pulled me in from uh, the truck dock to help unload on the trains. And we were taken down in bunches of 25 each. Well, at one point, I came back to get my load of 25, and they said, hey, kid, come here. You know, I was 20 years old, uh, a little trimmer than I am now. Yeah, hard to believe. Um, and uh, go in and get it. Go and get what? There was a black Angus in the back. Uh, and I says, okay. And I could hardly see it because it was dark, but I could hear it. And he says, if you get in trouble, there's a chin-up bar above the door. Grab the chin-up bar, pull yourself up, and let him go out from underneath you. Now, in high school, <laughs> I was the guy who could never do the chin-up. You know, Come on. Coach be yelling at me, and I could never do a chin-up because I was sort of a that kind of guy, right? I go in there, and I, <laughs> and this steer, I see, I see uh, uh, dust going up in the air, and I, and I know, oh, my God, here's 1,200 pounds of angry meat coming right at me. <laughs> and he charges me. And I grab that chin-up bar, and with one arm, I lift myself. <laughs> so the next time you hear a story about some little old lady lifting up a car so a baby can get out, believe it. <laughs> Adrenaline can do an awful lot. I was, whoa, I, said, I was up there, and I said, oh, coach, come on, you got to see this. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay. Produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.